As you can see in your notes, and for those of you watching online, you can go to the website and see the manuscript. Today we come to one of the most dramatic, one of the most earth-shaking descriptions in all of the Bible. I do not know that I know of another like it. Here we find the great shaking of nations. That's referred to in the book of Haggai. But we also see the gathering of the nations to the great day of God Almighty. We pointed out, Pastor Rod and I pointed out in earlier messages that here in the Revelation, you began to see the beginning of the end. Here we are watching this progress and we are seeing how this will come about all to the glory of God, all within his control, even as we will see today. And yet, right in the midst of it, right in the midst of this tremendous cataclysm, these plagues that are, that are hurled like, like a blunt force against the earth and its inhabitants, right in the middle of that, we find the exhortation that we just read. And we find the Lord says, I come as a thief. He will come suddenly, certainly at the rapture, but even here, he, he comes as a thief. His, his return, his coming could occur any moment. So since we know that, what should we do? And he says, blessed, huh? isn't it wonderful to hear Blessed in, in the midst of all this blasting, in the midst of all these, these harmful plagues. And isn't it wonderful to know that there's a blessing? And the, the blessing is this. Blessed is he who watches. Blessed is he who, who keeps his eyes on the Lord and keeps his garments Spotless, obviously a reference to the way we live our lives, not only to the Ten Commandments, but to all those very strong ethical exhortations that Jesus Christ gives us in the Sermon on the Mount about forgiving and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one because there is not an attitude of forgiveness. All these things could soil the garments of our lives. We'll talk about in just a few moments what those garments represent. But first, notice the way this passage is structured so that we don't miss what is actually here. It would be very easy to get all caught up in these events and what does this mean? And, and, and when it talks about the sun scorching men, what, what does that actually refer to? It would be really, really easy to get caught up in those things. But here's what we have to remember. This is the word of God. First and foremost, we ought to look for the God of the word in the word of God. And in doing so, recognize what he says about himself, that he is, verse 9, he is the God who has power over the plagues. These rebels in the tribulation, they actually blaspheme him because he has power over the plagues. We also learn about him that he is the God of heaven. That's important for all of us. Aren't you looking forward to heaven? 
doesn't heaven grow dearer every day, more magnetic with, with every saint of God who goes on before us? You just long for it, as you heard me say many years ago, one of the men in our congregation went into the hospital there at Blanchard Valley, knew from the death rattle in his wife's throat that it was probably the day of her passing. And I said to him, heaven's getting ready to be a little sweeter. He said, I know a whole lot more people up there than I do down here. I have never forgotten that remark. And the older we get, we know a whole lot more people up there than we do down here. But most especially, when you think about heaven, are you longing merely to go with those you love or are you longing for the God of heaven? Are you longing to be with Jesus, your Savior? This passage also tells us that he is the God who controls nature. We will see in this passage that he is going to dry up the Euphrates River. Is that connected with this scorching heat? It's hard to say, but at the very least, what God is doing is he is drying up the Euphrates River. And the passage is very plain that he is clearing the way for the great battle that is to come. He is clearing the way for the kings of the east to cross over. We also see in this passage that God will clothe his people in righteous robes. I think that's what's referred to in verse 15. When he says, he that keeps his garments, you can go back and see a little earlier that uh, he talked about this to the churches, about the righteous robes. We, we sing about this many times when we sing his robes for mine. And we have to ask ourselves, how do our robes, how does the way we live our lives, our attitude, our approach, how does that look in the sight of Almighty God? We see also in this passage that he is the God who will demonstrate his authority, and he does. When you see just how bad these things are and what Satan himself and his demons, the, the Antichrist, the false prophet, what they do in, in all their hatred of God, all their rebellion against God actually accomplishes God's purposes according to his precise will. If you look over in Revelation chapter 17, verse 17, you can see those very words that he's doing all these things. They're accomplishing all these things according to his will. Do you believe today that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose? Do you believe that he is conforming believers to the image of God's son? I believe that. Do you believe Joseph's words when he said to his brethren, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about as it is this day to save much people alive. And he comforted those who had sold him into slavery. You see that same grace of God in this passage. God will demonstrate his power in disasters. Don't miss this part in a way never before seen in history. In, in all the history of the world, our past, our present, even our future, not until you come to these events, 
These will be the worst ever in the history of the world. And don't miss verses 19 through 21 because there we see that in the fierceness of his righteous wrath, and it is righteous, it is, it is God in his righteousness and his righteous indignation, God in his righteous wrath will judge those who have rebelled against him. So look, if you will, at verse 8 and notice immediately that you get into this fourth plague, the bowl that is poured out, the unmixed wrath of God hurled upon the earth. And what do you see there in this fourth plague? Well, the fourth angel pours out his bowl upon the sun and power is given to the sun to scorch men with fire. They're scorched with a great heat. And what do they do? They, they blaspheme the name of God. We learned back in Revelation chapter 15 that these are marvelous in the sense of astounding or astonishing or awe-inspiring plagues that are hurled at the earth. And this one is truly astounding because it intensifies the heat of the sun upon the earth somehow. There have been those who have said, well, I think it's talking about the sun becoming a supernova. Well, here's what astrophysicists tell you, that if any supernovas were to occur within 25 light years of where we are right now, our atmosphere would be destroyed. In other words, that would be, there would be no more life really existing on earth, certainly not human or animal life. That's not what's depicted here. It is not like the end. So it's probably not the sun going into a supernova. Many of you have been reading lately about the ozone layer and the healing of the ozone layer. I mean, could, could a depletion in the ozone layer cause intense sunburns and scorching? That certainly could be. Another possibility, though, here is this idea that's raised in Haggai chapter 2. You might look in your manuscript or look in your Bibles. At the end of uh, the book, uh, the Old Testament, near the end, you have two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And their special burden is that the temple would be rebuilt. This is after Ezra and Nehemiah are leading, bringing the people back to the nation of Israel. Zerubbabel is their, their king and leader, leader, in essence, who is there. And uh, Haggai and Zechariah are really, really very intent on the rebuilding of the temple. Well, notice what it says in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. For thus says the Lord of hosts, that's the words that Luther was using when he said, Lord Sabaoth, his name, he's referring to the Lord of hosts. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once in a little while, and I will shake, notice what it says, shake the heavens and the earth and the sea. Oh, it's one thing to shake the earth. It's quite another thing to shake the sea as well as the earth. He says even more. He says, shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. You know, at Christmas time, we often sing based on an interpretation of this passage, come desire of nations come. And it's referring to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, stop to think about that just for a moment because this earth 
is in such very careful placement to the sun that it's really perfect for us. So our, our crops are grown without their automatically being scorched. We don't get sunburned every time we go outside. We're not like the planet Venus or Mercury. We're in the perfect placement. I once heard the earth described as like an apple. And if you picture the earth as an apple, the, the peel, the skin of the apple represents earth's atmosphere. And we are just in this sweet spot, I believe designed by God for us to be here and glorify God in this place. Here's the question. What if it were not that way? What if there were a wobbling? What if there were a shaking of the known universe, the heavens and the sea and the dry land? Well, certainly that would raise some huge questions about living on earth, life on earth. And when you think about the shaking of the heavens and the earth, the sea, the dry land, you think about that being shaken up and disrupted. By the time we get to the end of this passage, it mentions the the greatest earthquake in the history of the world. Think what that would be like if the earth were not in that precise place with reference to the sun. I think these are exactly the kind of things that are being presented here. And what does this passage say? Look at your Bible. Does it say, And when they saw all these things, they got down on their faces and repented before the Lord God of the plagues. That's not what my Bible says. It's not what your Bible says. What it actually says that they did was they blasphemed the name of God who has power over the plagues. They blasphemed the name of God who has power over over the plagues. They did not repent to give him glory. One occasion, a friend of mine was talking to his father and he had a little run-in with the law. I think it was a traffic stop, nothing more than that. But he had been very, very uh, argumentative with the highway patrolman. And the highway patrolman ended up exacting the full amount that he could exact from him because of his attitude. And I've never forgotten that his father, whom I knew very well, said to his son, why would you argue with the man who has the baseball bat in his hands? I've never forgotten that question. Why would this world argue with the God who has the power of the plagues? You say, maybe they didn't know it was God. You read earlier and they know it's the wrath of the lamb. It is known that this is the way it is. And yet they rebel against him and do not give him glory. That's an interesting phrase. When he says they did not give him glory, messages a while back we looked at this. We talked about it in a message on the amens. And we've talked about it a couple of other times. I've heard Pastor Rod mention this message or mention this passage as well. You might turn back to Romans chapter 4 and verse 20 or notice it there in your manuscript. Here's Paul and Paul is describing the saving faith of Abraham in the Old Testament. And here's what he says about him in Romans chapter four, verse 20. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, now catch this, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. He was 
He was strong in faith. He believed God. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God. When Abraham glorified God by embracing his promise, the question we would ask is, okay, what happened then? If he was strong in faith, giving glory to God, embracing God's promises, what happens? And this is where it really gets exciting. If you look at Romans chapter 4, verses 21 through 25, it says, it goes on to say, and he, Abraham, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Dearly beloved, do you believe that what God has promised, he is able to perform. Abraham did. Abraham believed God. And then notice what happened. And this is where it really gets exciting. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Wow. Because Abraham placed his faith in the promise of God, he believed God. God put righteousness on Abraham's account. He put, he put his righteousness. He, he declared Abraham to be righteous in his sight. You say, that would be amazing to be Abraham. But wait, there's more. Read on in the passage. Paul says, now it was not written for his sake alone. Really? Who else? It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed or placed on Abraham's account, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. You see what he's saying there? He is saying that if we embrace God's promise by faith, forsaking all, I trust him. Lord, I believe your promise that God puts righteousness on our accounts. He, he declares us to be righteous in his sight. And he goes on to explain this. He says, if we believe on him, on the Lord, that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. So here's the question today. Do you believe on him? Do you believe on him, the one that was, he was put forward for your offenses? He was crucified for your offenses. He was raised again so that you had the absolute proof that you have been declared righteous in God's sight. Do you believe that? If so, my dear friend, you have the faith of Abraham and you are this moment giving glory to God. But these in the tribulation who will not repent, they will not give glory to God. They will not embrace Christ by faith. They will say, no, not for me. Don't want it. Nothing to do with it. Even when the intensity of the sun grows so great that it scorches people, and they are hurting and they are in pain. What do they do? They blaspheme the name of God who has power over the plagues. That, that has got to be one of the most uh, 
stunning descriptions of sin and depravity in all of the word of God. The fifth angel you see in verses 10 and 11. That verse says, and the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the seat of the beast. So he's speaking here of the capital city of wherever the Antichrist sets up his capital. The fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the seat of the beast and his kingdom was full of darkness. Doesn't that sound like the plague in Egypt? His kingdom was full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. Now, I just want you to stop to think for a moment and ask yourself this question because it may be coming to your mind. Why would God put people in a situation where in deep darkness, the pain would be so great on their bodies that they gnaw their tongues for pain? Does God get his jollies out of causing people pain? The answer is no, and here's why. There is something far worse than a deep darkness on this earth and a pain that causes you to gnaw your tongue. What could be worse than that? And the answer is, forever would you think with me about that for a moment forever for eternity being that way because dear friends what you read about in this plague is a close parallel to what you find about the lake of fire where there is no escape. Do you remember that the rich man was in hell and he said, uh, send someone back to my brothers. Was the rich man suddenly repenting? I mean, now he gets it and says, send someone back to my brothers. You know, send somebody back from the dead. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them and the rich man said no no but if they would send someone back then they would believe you see he's telling you about the basis for his belief and what he's saying here is not the word of God whatever it is it's not the word of God it's signs and wonders or miracles or something but it's not this And so here are these people and they are gnawing their tongues for pain in their deep darkness and their deeper rebellion and they will not repent and give glory to God. There's a really interesting verse. It's the last verse in Romans chapter one. You might want to turn over there and notice it in your manuscript that if if you were giving the gospel to someone, how might you proceed? Well, I believe you would talk about the glory of God, Romans eleven thirty six. You've heard us go through the grace acronym many times. You talk about the glory of God. 
You talk about the reality of sin, each person's sin, all have sin that comes short of the glory of God. You would talk to them about the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. You would talk to them about the importance of embracing Christ. God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the way you would proceed to help them understand, here's how you place faith. I mean, it's important to embrace him by faith. Well, with that in mind, that, that approach to a gospel presentation, a, a plan of salvation in mind, look at what it says here in Romans 1, verse 32. Who, speaking of people, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Okay, now you see where he's going with this. He's saying, there are people who are sinning. There are people who are doing evil deeds. They are sinning. And here's what they know. They know the judgment of God, that is, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Do you see that? They, they get the first, they get two of the parts of the gospel presentation, sin and the penalty for sin. They get it. And so are the next words here, they embrace Christ? No. The next words are, they not only do the same, but they have pleasure. They take pleasure in those that do them. Pause for a moment to recognize something. Romans 1.32 is not in the book of the Revelation about the end of the tribulation period. It's about today. It was what was going on in societies of Rome and Greece, and it's going on today. The gospel song says, plead with them earnestly, plead with them gently. Because those who, instead of embracing Christ, they take pleasure in those who do evil will face the eternal judgment that is described here. You don't have to look very far in your newspaper or the internet or wherever you get your news from to see Romans 132 brought out in its fullness right in our society. People taking pleasure in that evil. It, it shows you something about the unrepentant nature of human beings in their deep evil and depravity. In the sixth plague, verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates and the water thereof was dried up that the way of kings might be prepared. The Euphrates River has been referred to as the dividing line between the east and the west. You, you always wonder, how far do you have to go east before you get west? And the way that geographers have described it is that's the river Euphrates. By some accounts, 1,780 miles. By other accounts, I guess it's because it, it, the meandering, some say 1,900 miles. But going Turkey, uh, Iraq, or Turkey, Syria, Iraq, you find there it is one of the greatest rivers of all. It's even referred to in the book of Genesis. It is a wonderful river. The, the term Mesopotamia, if you think about the fertile crescent going all the way from Israel up to uh, Syria, Assyria, over all the way over into Babylonia, modern day Iraq. Uh, Mesopotamia refers to the plain between the rivers, the two rivers of the Tigris and Euphrates. And here's what he's saying. He's saying 
the Euphrates is going to be dried up. And specifically why? That the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Here's what the Lord is doing is he is preparing that battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now, right in that context, and I suppose because they see these things happening, look in verses 13 and 14, one of the most vile and horrible and yet graphic descriptions in all the word of God about demons and demonism, look what he says here. He says, and I saw three unclean spirits, those are demons, like frogs, they look frog-like, dark frogs, came out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Who are these? The dragon, that's Satan. The antichrist, that's the beast, the false prophet. They, these demons come out of the mouth of these people. So it's something that is probably spoken or it's words that are said and out of their mouths come these demons. And what do these demons do? He says, these are the spirits of demons working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Do you see then that even doing their worst, out of the mouth come these demons like like frogs coming out of their mouth. They go and gather all the kings of the earth together. They're doing God's will. Again, Romans 17, 17, they're doing exactly what the Lord is allowing. Why? Because he's accomplishing his purposes. In all the evil that is done, in every way that is done, he is accomplishing his purposes. So when the way is cleared, these kings will come. And what will they do? They will contend with God himself. They're... They're going to try to say, let's all get together and we're going to go to battle with God himself. Who would do such a thing? Who would take on the almighty God? And yet this is the nature of the blindness and repentance. When I ask you again, Have you embraced him by faith? Have you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Or are you still in rebellion against him? You might say, I'm not in that kind of rebellion against him. Guess what, friends? When the pressures grow greater and it's more intense, if you do not repent of your rebellion, you will be like them. On more than one occasion, as I have been witnessing to people, talking to them about the Lord in their rebellion, I have seen people raise their fist and curse God right in my presence. I wanted to stand back and think, is the lightning bolt going to come? I've seen that with my own eyes. So what you're seeing here in Revelation is not some unusual thing that will, oh no, it's happening today, it's happening now. And in the middle of that is coming the battle of Armageddon, the Lord's coming. Notice what it says in verses 15 and 16. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into the place 
in the Hebrew tongue called Armageddon. Isn't it very intriguing that right in the middle of this prophetic passage, the Lord pauses to encourage and exhort his saints. And he says, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming as a thief. Watch for me, wait for me, keep your garments clean. If today your pornographic movies mean far more to you than your prayer, can I tell you, friend, you are not watching and waiting for him. The slander, the gossip, the evil intent, the evil deeds, that's not keeping our garments clean and watching and waiting for him. Do we want his blessing? He says, blessed is he who keeps, who watches and keeps his garments. When the French general Napoleon was on his, what he called his campaign d'Orient, He went first and attacked Egypt. By the way, that's where they found the Rosetta Stone. His soldiers found the Rosetta Stone there on that campaign in in Egypt. And he moved on up the coast. He um, besieged Joppa. If you go to Joppa today, Joppa, uh, today called Jaffa, J-A-F-F-A, oldest documented port in world history. There may be older ones. It's the oldest documented one. And if you go to Joppa today, there is a statue of Napoleon because they know that he was there. Napoleon moved on up the coast and he came past the Carmel Ridge out onto the Valley of Jezreel, also called the Valley of Esdralon. The Bible here is referring to this valley as the Valley of Harmageddon. When it says Har, that's mountain. Megiddo is, is the gap. Megiddo is actually the the plain, the city between where the gap there. And so when that, that whole valley is referred to as the Valley of Megiddo, the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Armageddon, it raises the question. So when he says Harmageddon, are there any mountains in there? Well, there's Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is a little farther down. And so he could be indicating to us here, that's where the big battle is going to take place. And anyway, here's in the 1800s, here's Napoleon and he sees this valley. And I put the quote here in your notes. He said, all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. Isn't that stunning? Napoleon could see that. Now, whether or not he knew the scriptures or not, I doubt he did. But even he as a great military general could say, look at what is actually here. Well, finally, then we have the seventh plague, the seventh angel, and it refers to as, in the very last words, as this plague is exceedingly great. The seventh angel and his exceedingly great plague, the seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air and and look at what happens. There's a great voice from the temple of heaven, appears to be the very voice of God himself, who will announce, it is done. Do you, you hear the air of finality there? We, we already knew, Pastor Rod and I already preached through in the earlier, we, we knew that these were the last of the plagues, the, the completing of God's wrath in this age, in this dispensation, because 
later on after the millennium we know that there's going to be another great battle satan's going to be released and it's coming and we certainly know that there is the wrath of god on those after the great white throne judgment but in this age in this dispensation here it is voices and thunder and lightning and the worst earthquake in history did you see when it said there so mighty an earthquake and so great that it had never been another such as was not since men were upon the earth. It mentions the great city. We believe that's Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be divided into three parts, but not only Jerusalem, the cities of the nations of the world will fall. There has, he has to be describing here such movement in the tectonic plates that every time there's an earthquake, the geologists tell you, okay, there was, there was a tectonic plate and it kind of slipped and it caused an earthquake, perhaps a tsunami. What he almost has to be describing is that every place on earth this happened. Why? Because all the cities of the nations will fall and great Babylon. The big question we all have is, where is he talking about? It means he talking about the Shinar in the Old Testament where Babylon was built and you know the Tower of Babel, modern day Iraq. Is, is he talking about something being rebuilt there? Is it like, you know, back to the beginning? The answer is we don't know. But we do know, and we'll see this in upcoming messages, that this great mystery Babylon is, is the quintessential example of human depravity. And it will fall. And this will be an exceedingly great plague. Yet, what will be the response of rebellious human beings? Do you see it there? And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. The hail falls 50 to 130 pounds. If you use the Roman measure, 50 pounds. If you use the Jewish measure, 100 to 130 pounds. Can you imagine that? You remember when we had the, uh, when we had the hail come through here? Uh, it was about a week after Ryan and Jessica got married. you remember that? Uh, why do I remember that? It's just the way it stays in my mind. We had to replace our roof. There's a whole swath here for about, I don't know, a couple of miles. And, and every roof around here had to be. And, and uh, when those hailstones broke open, they were, they were in concentric. You could see how they were formed, go up and freeze and come back down. The thermal carried them up again. But can you imagine 50 to 100 pounds? If, if we were in this building right now and there was a hailstorm of 50 to 130 pounds falling, can you imagine? We have a strong roof. It's not that strong. And this is going on every place on the earth. So what do men do? They blaspheme God for the plague of hail. What do we learn from this? Well, one of the things we learn is today is the day of salvation. If you have never embraced God's promise to save you and glorified him by embracing Jesus Christ as your savior, here's what 2 Corinthians 6 tells you. Today, today is the day of salvation. Can I just beg of you, don't put this off. Embrace God by faith today. Praise the God of heaven. Give him glory, embracing him by faith. Take the time to think through the fact that God is in complete control of world events. Here, you, we get so frustrated sometimes over, yeah, but look, 
look what this political leader did. Look what that, and I, and I get it. And I'm, I'm, I'm like you, I'm, I'm really, really frustrated. And I'm, I'm meeting with some pastors even tomorrow here in Finley to talk about, okay, what do we do in a situation like this? But do bear in mind that God is in complete control of world events. Don't get frustrated when depravity seems to increase. God will judge all things, including the devil himself and all the demons of hell. Watch for him. Wait for him. Keep your garments clean. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Confess and repent of any known sin. And tell others about the wrath of God against sin and appeal to them to flee from the wrath to come. Number one, have you fled from the wrath to come? And number two, have you ever tearfully, carefully appealed to someone else to flee from the wrath to come? Dear friend, may God help us when we think about the great day of God Almighty. There are some very practical lessons here for all of us. May God be glorified that we embrace him. Shall we pray together? Lord, this passage is sobering. It causes us to be very circumspect. When we think about the great day of God Almighty that is coming, We see these practical lessons. Lord, it's very plain in this passage that you are going to be blasting the earth with these very terrible and very forceful plagues. Yet right in the middle of it, we see your blessing. Lord, help us today to run to that blessing, to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. While our heads are bowed right now, every eye is closed. Dear friend, I'm asking you as an individual here just for a moment. How about you? Have you embraced Jesus Christ by faith, giving God glory? Or are you still living in your unrepentant state dear friend why not today turn and trust Christ why not this very moment agree with God and say today is the day of salvation and in the quietness of this moment trust Christ as your Lord and Savior will you do that Will you do that right now? Cry out to him. He is ready to hear you now. Cry out to him from your heart. And if today is the day that you are crying out to him right now to save you, I want you to know there are people all around you who are longing to help you grow in Jesus Christ. Let us know that. Let us know. I cried out to the Lord. And he will save you. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, be glorified, I pray. Cause those in this room 
who have never repented this moment to give you glory. And we pray in Jesus' name.